0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your
1: journey. Your Your journey. journey, Your journey starts here. Here. So
0: I'm
2: going to begin by introducing Brian. Brian Gilmore, Washington, D.C., poet and longtime public interest lawyer is the author of three collections of poetry, including his latest, We Didn't Know Any Gangsters, Cherry Castle Publishing, 2014, which was nominated for an NAACP Image Award and a Hurston Wright Award. He is a Cave Canem Fellow and Cambilio Fellow and twice recipient of a Maryland State Arts Council Individual Artist Award. He currently teaches social justice law at Michigan State University. His blog is called Bumpy's Blues. Here's what Brian Gilmore writes about poet and activist Gaston Neal walking into a public space. He was carrying poems, and the people were his politics. If your politics are what you care about most, then the people are Brian Gilmore's politics, too, in his latest book. Not just the people in his family album— but African Americans of broad cultural importance, and not just sung heroes like Amiri Baraka or Romare Bearden, but unsung ones—men mowing lawns, women fabulous in hanging clothes, people heroic for putting baloney and cheese on white or wheat. I'm sorry, on wheat or white on the table. Bursting with tiny portraits, the poems would resemble a novel if they didn't more strongly resemble a series of intense movie clips, and most strongly of all, a sequence of jazz solos, a melody river that tumbles forward and back. The past transforms the present in this work, just as a poem can live on in its listeners, making them stronger, inspiring change. We're so glad he's carried his poems here today. Please help me to welcome Brian Gilmore.
1: an introduction. Didn't even recognize that person, <laughs> but that's sounding very nice. to Tell the truth, so great to be in Baltimore, where I spent many days as a young kid with my family. My father was born here. Him and his family. Uh, a very fascinating city, shall I say? You uh, know, I'm gonna read. Uh, gotta read most, read some from. We Didn't Know Any Gangsters, and the publisher for We Didn't Know Any Gangsters is here, as you all know, Truth Thomas. i always appreciative that they were able to get the book out uh, and everything, especially after <coughs> everything that happened. So uh, I'll start from the start. The poem that sort of sets the tone of the book called Billy Bathgate, which was inspired by the doctoral novel. And movie Billy Bathgate. And this is for Chico. All I've got is this picture. It could have been Vander Zee, Gordon Parks, Augie Ogburn, fresh from a Chancellor Williams shoot. We are capable boys, innocent, up some small mountain in summertime from that swamp of a city. We couldn't juggle balls. Didn't know any gangsters. All we had was ice-cold Michelob and red juicy melon, holy like water. We didn't know about rattlesnakes that I've now been told are all over that mountain. All I've got is this picture. I could call up the crew, though some of them are gone away now like wisp of smoke. Others are here just floating on skyline like kite without stream. We were capable boys, looking into the future as if we would live like Frederick Douglass or C.L.R. James. Did I mention the Michelob? Red, juicy melon, holy like water. And how about those rattlesnakes all around us now that we know they are there? All I've got is this picture, unbreakable smiles, lean frames. Polo shirts gripping young boys soon to be walking tightropes without poles. It's there, all of it, ice-cold Michelob, melon holy like water, rattlesnakes. We couldn't juggle balls, didn't know any gangsters. We were capable boys. All I've got is this picture. King of New York for the mothers and fathers. He was shot in the chest in the middle of the day, close range, a German Luger. Badass Ricky Jay who wore a blue Peter's jacket, collar turned up, blue jeans that hung off his butt. And you could see he wore boxers. Only the coolest guys wore boxers and let their jeans hang. Briefs were for dudes who went to school, didn't smoke, and didn't hang out late at night. People were afraid of Ricky. Even the dude who walked up to him with his father's German Luger was afraid of him. He wasn't even after Ricky. He was after the driver. But Ricky took the bullet for all time, made us all forget about men mowing lawns, women fabulous in hanging clothes, people heroic for putting bologna and cheese on wheat or white on the table, a high joker in spades. We all remember and still say this is the corner where Ricky was shot, 1974, in a car. They rushed him to the hospital, but he died. Created something difficult to handle, like Robert Johnson's 28 or 29 songs, jumping trains, going nowhere really. Chicago, some woman, some man, somebody has to die, bury him in some unmarked grave. Ricky couldn't fight either. Didn't go to school, got arrested, smoked cigarettes, set his mother's house on fire. But we will always remember Ricky J, box of sorts, drooping jeans, cigarettes, grab the gun, open the door to forever. You don't want to be hanging on corners, drinking cheap wine someday years from now, bumming chains, getting laughed at by some young boys listening to Tupac Shakur, too young to know you wrote some songs. Love some women, made this neighborhood a place where people remember the smell of coffee in the morning. All I want to know is why he set his mother's house on fire and why does no one remember men mowing lawns, women hanging clothes, people who kept the lights on as we walk, as he walked streets like he's some great blues singer or something, as if he's Marvin Gaye, born here in Deanwood, nineteen thirty nine. Shot and killed by his daddy, Los Angeles, 1984. My father, as I said, was born in Baltimore. And this is kind of like the story of his, uh, I'll read these next two poems. It sort of frames a piece of his life. It always makes you uh, wonder. A lot of things had to happen for you to get here and get here in the state that you got here with a chance. And this is a soldier's story. And this is told in, the, in my father's voice. I will not die in Korea. My children will be born. Thousands of colored men dead like ants who have crawled too far for crumbs. Harry Truman given hell. Executive Order 9981. This is what could have been. Wasn't what was it shall never worry? I meet the man on his grisly turf. Never meet the rising sun. So many colored men dying like middle passengers dragged here by ship. NAACP loud like locusts. Coast Guardsman Haley scratches the word. Charles Wrangell, Harlem, hero, hell given Harry wants to rule the world. I come down to the city of government. Learn to type. Get a good government job, GS1 or 2, something to talk over with gin and lime. I meet a graduate of Paul Dunbar High, pretty lady who spins some tales, right like the queen, doesn't fret about how it be. She walks behind Charles Drew, good god of blood, Jessie Fawcett, well-mannered with word. Her shorthand is a poem, civil service exam, freedom train. Days full of rooms and men. She dances dark streets where she is told to stay. Her mother out pounding the pave, buying bread, bringing the south up north for respect. Thousands write letters, send dollars for more. No more hot sun cow milk days. Fields of rice, corn cake break. World bank like crop share crooks. Trapped in bricks, but give glory to God. I didn't die in Korea, I was lucky, my children born. I was courteous to the pretty Dunbar woman. I came to the city, got a good government job, fell in love with shorthand, talked about it humbly over gin and lime. But most of all, I learned how to type. This is for my grandparents, Aquila Sr. And Hazel, who from, they came up from the south to Baltimore, and uh, Quilla Sr. was an insurance salesman. But this is called Avalon, and this is like the second part of telling a piece of my father's life here. The son ponders his departure in the middle of night. His parents asleep in their creaky Baltimore row house, heated by stoves. There was nothing here for him in this city anymore. That is why he has come. He wants to be sure. His father, an insurance man, sells no more policies. His mother has long since immersed herself in mail-order vitamins, scripture, lukewarm glasses of tap water boiled pure. The son's older brothers have not returned from wars. His sisters are busy trying to marry. The son's life is cold concrete, dead of winter. His father built something in this dog of a city. Colored man keeping the lights on door to door, the the old way. Ten children into the world, no prisoners, no prostitutes, hot meals, warm beds. His boys arriving now and then with medals on their chests full of stories that need to be told. The son has a bus ticket to the capital of the world, just down the highway. He doesn't know how to tell his father, there is nothing here but crab meat and football. He never liked crab cakes. He can read about Johnny Unitas and the Colts in the newspaper. Pops, he thinks to say, an old woman fell down some stairs today. I helped her up, but she just kept falling back down. The father will not say a word. He will not understand, no matter what the son says. Makes no difference anyhow. This is Baltimore, 1951, a city of railroad tracks south side. Numbers racket. In the morning, the son leaves for the city down the road. The memory of his parents' permanent ink inside his head. His father possessed by newspaper, searching furiously for something to read that will make him forget about selling insurance. His mother sitting in the kitchen, boiling her water pure and digesting scripture slowly like bread. The first, part, the first part of the book is uh, called, uh, I'll tell you, it's called Capable Boys. It's really about my misguided youth to tell the truth. And the second part of the book is called Second Lives. It's kind of like, you know, okay, so try to put this thing together, right? So this is, uh, I'll read uh, one or two here. And this first one is called 2001, A Space Odyssey. And uh, this is like after high school and trying to get yourself together, right? We all go through that. 2001, A Space Odyssey. I want to go away to college, I tell my parents. A small, predominantly white college in the mountains of Western Maryland. Their faces are double Mona Lisa. <laughs> A man is changing a flat tire in the middle of a busy intersection. I have walked up and told him, step aside. Let me get that for you. A dog with rabies is at my front door barking wildly. I invite him in the house, offer food. A few years back, my parents enrolled me in Howard University and finally began to sleep well at night. Like newborns, they hog call until one day I tell them, I hate the place like fire hates water, like red wine hates white carpet. Their rage that day is long like the last note on Louis' West End Blues. I have just thrown a brick through a church window. The list is long. Father, uncle, doctor, dentist, lawyer down the street, teachers at the schools, all of the others who climbed over walls full of nails and tacks, who always threw back some rope. Then silence, endless like railways or interstates. They become the computer in 2001, A Space Odyssey, acting a damn fool. As I ask, open the pod doors, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? They need not speak. They've been chased by dogs, almost run over by cars. They will sleep well at night in the coming days. I will scour the streets for churches with busted windows and offer to clean up the glass. And this is like the same experience now I went to college, right? This is called Jaws. As we cruise through the campus, there isn't a black face in sight. I am a slug after a rainstorm, salt has been poured. My father reaches the administration building, urges me to go pay the bills so he and my mother can go home. It is all so quick. In the building, I look up in front of the payment line, finally see a black person, a young girl who looks petrified. We're both on that raggedy boat with that stupid shark hunter who thinks he knows it all. The eerie music has started. It is getting louder. Round midnight, my mother and father have been gone for hours. It has sunk in like hands into potting soil. I am all alone. I imagine my parents back in the city laughing loud, asking themselves, "Why did he do this? How could he have traded in a jazz club for an eight-track of live bluegrass music?" <laughs> it' was purple rain. For G. J really for George, one of my roommates in college, who was like, he was a crazy dude. My roommate wants to be Marilyn Perkins on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, or Jacques Cousteau, the French deep sea diver who was cooler than Ron O'Neill, dealing cocaine and superfly. My roommate and I both want to live and die at the same time. We share this worldview as if we were born on the same day. In Washington, D.C., uptown, raised on cherry smash, soda pop, bon ton cheese, popcorn, bologna sandwiches, sweet potato pie, and AM radio, emceed by Bobby Bennett. My roommate is white from Annapolis. My mother grew up with Dinah Washington singing, You Go to My Head, right through her kitchen window, while her mother stacked homemade buttermilk biscuits next to green beans and bacon. One night... My roommate and I were coming home from the Prince Purple Rain concert on a dark mountain road. A car began coming at us going at least 100 miles per hour. These were the days where he and I would invite the entire student body to our dorm room and try to consume all of the rum ever distilled on the island of Puerto Rico. We both grabbed the wheel of his car that night, blew the horn until we were back in our room, the dorm laughing and talking to each other in the dark of our beds until stench from the morning paper mill forced our eyes to close. This is what we did every night of the week. This is when I found out why he wanted to chase zebras across remote regions of earth or study the feeding habits of crocodiles and be paid for it. I never ever tell him what I want to do. I have no idea. Most days I just listen to Prince sing about 1999. Judgment Day and read Rolling Stone magazine articles about how the government is killing people in Central America. Our room is full of Iron City beer, B-52 songs, Ron Rico rum, and mixed up young white kids who all want to die. They remind us each night when we talk in the dark that we are still out on the road, gripping that wheel like rope hanging from a cliff and laughing Looking down at the world like it's a woman we just met And know we want to love I'm going to read a couple of poems Poet Yusef Komiaka, you saw, said once And I heard him in Philadelphia He said uh, you should always have like four manuscripts going at one time I mean I thought that was pretty amazing So I've been trying to keep some manuscripts going you know And one is about Michigan, which is probably the most complete. And uh, I'm going to read a couple points about being in Michigan, leaving Washington, D.C., and going to live in Michigan and work there for most of the year. And uh, it's almost like it has a Motown soundtrack underneath it, which is what I tried to do. So this first one is called Distant Lover, number one. Mural... Of Marvin eating mumbo sauce. Churches falling apart. Jesus on the cross. Broke streets with stomach bums waving at buses. People on board shouting about lack of justice. And my mom's is back home making salmon cakes. Kids these days no longer carry rakes. Movies I see take too many takes. My mom's back home making salmon cakes. I work... Now up by the Great Lakes, few up there are really fakes, for goodness sakes. The city where I was formed relies on these lies. Skies and french fries, pies and those much-needed highs. We bake the good in the city made of chocolate that is darker, not lighter, and so much whiter. Just Ralph Ellison again, not visible. Invisible, not worried about being divisible. Back where it began, hidden slave march. Public schools full of someone else's arts. So we created our own. roto Tom's backing up like computer networks. They still rock beats, donning permanent smirks. Murals of Marvin eating mumbo sauce. Churches falling apart. Jesus on the cross. Broke streets with stumble bums waving at buses. People on board shouting about lack of justice. And my mom's back home making salmon cakes. This is called Distant Lover Motown Remix. A lot of these are like me trying to talk to Marvin Gaye in the middle of the night, (laughs) asking him, like, why did you come here? Like, why did you move to Michigan? Stuff like that. Come see about me, Marvin. Long way from home. Cold out here. No palm trees, citrus fruit. No 80 degree days or beaches made of sand. And the stores out here are outer space heaters. My winter soup is just a recipe written on note cards. Alarm rings in the morning, I do not move. Robert Hayden needs to wake his father from his slumber. Lumber is needed, though it ain't Sunday. Come see about me, Marvin. Did I tell you I'm lonely? My mother came here once. It was May and still cold. She isn't afraid of anything but the chill crawled up her spine like snakes scarfing for food. My mother always been afraid of snakes. Can't blame this on Harvey Fuqua. Can't blame this on Barry Gordy. Can't blame this on my awful singing voice. If only I could sing, I might feel warmer. Buy me a hip home on Outer Drive in Detroit. Get a fire started and invite some singing football players over to make a classic. Come see about by me Marvin. Take me to your old haunts. Take me to L.A. or Hawaii. Hurry, I'm in trouble man. I am one of the sensitive people. Need to be wanted, didn't you hear? My lady left me out here in the cold like a deer lost near an interstate. Please come show me the way home. I'm pretty sure I don't know how to get there anymore. And this is uh, another one called Distant Lover. Number two. And uh this was written by my wife had a great idea to say. I'm going to go back to D.C. and take a teaching job for a year. and left me out there in the cold. <laughs> With five, three kids. <laughs> so this is like one of these, like, what the hell? So this is called Distant Lover, the Michigan, My Michigan Bed Remix. Dear lover, where you once slept, there are books now. Langston Hughes, the weary blues and one about the Kent State shootings, 1970. I don't read the books. They're there to fill the space. I hold hands with the books under the covers. Lover, think of them as I doze off and dream of you so far away. I imagine you there beside me reading in bed like you once did. I remember you saying you would not be gone long. It has been a while. There are a lot of books there and looks like many more to come as the space seems to get larger and larger the longer you are gone. Though now I've grown accustomed to sleeping with books. Last night I began to read the book about how the president once had some students murdered at Kent State University and no one went to jail. I met a woman once who was a roommate of one of the victims. Her room at Kent State suddenly empty and quiet like my room is each night. She had nothing to fill up the space. Her roommate dying every day again, telling her she would be back soon. She was going to an anti-war rally. I have books and your promise that you will return. Lay next to me and read something, or do nothing at all but be here, alive and in the big space you have created. Even as I try to pretend, I can replace you with some books. And I'll just read one more from this. I'll probably turn it over to Joe then. Right? Is it like 20 minutes? And this is like a poem called, that I wrote about my first visit to Michigan when I was thinking about taking the job. It's called Detroit Airport, December 2009. And it's like a, I don't even know if you call it a form, but it's called a sermon. And the sermon is sort of like a form, so which means there's going to be like some other voices. <laughs> but this is called Detroit Airport, December 2009. This is like my thinking back to when I first went out there. When I came here for the very first time, when he came here, I say when I came here for the very first time, I thought of the depth of Otis Redden. It was snowing. Snowing. Wind was whipping through my body like needles into cloth. Cloth. I say. when I came here, when he came here, Otis Redden done come to mind. He went down in some plane that James Brown told him not to board. And you know, if James Brown say don't do it, that means don't do it. <laughs> but angels must have been on my plane. Angels, because it was snowing and the wind was blowing on the tarmac in Romulus, Michigan. Yes, Romulus. Like, you know they call it the Detroit airport, but it is really in a city so far away you can't even see the giant GM building down in Detroit. Romulus, that got something to do with Rome, I heard, and that is how far away you feel when you are at the Detroit airport. (laughs) Like, you are in Rome. But the reason why I say Angels was on the plane is because I was warm and calm as if my wife had a baby. And the baby was in my arms just fine. And even if you don't believe in Angels, even if you don't believe in anything, you still got to understand that Otis Redden was on my mind. He got on some small little plane one day in 1967 with all the members of the Bar-Kays band and the plane crashed, not far from here, in Lake Morona, Wisconsin, foggy night. They all died except one of them. But this wasn't no foggy night. This was snow and wind that felt like glass pricking my face. But I brushed it all aside, brushed it like it was a bad dream that never started. And I still don't know why I had Otis on my mind because mostly I wasn't thinking of Otis Redding or Angels. I was thinking of my father, how he would be laughing right now, hearing about me on some small plane. He knows I was afraid of bicycles at first and roller coasters, and he held my hand all the way. And here I was on a plane that took off from some town called Romulus, and I was doing crossword puzzles. My mother always does crossword puzzles because it is like meditation. So I did crossword puzzles as the plane took off headed for Lansing, Michigan to teach law. Yes, sir. And it was as cold as a walk-in freezer, but I feel warm, warm as hot rolls out the oven. I got that Martin Luther King Jr. feeling the day before he was killed. Yes, you know, not worried about anybody, any man. You know, I am not me at all. I just walk out onto the tarmac and board the plane like I am a famous rhythm and blues singer headed for the next show, like Otis. And I'm going to make it to the show. I got a few things to say. I used to tremble when I spoke in front of people. But after that ride on that small plane, I speak good now. No quiver in my voice. I just think of the snow and ice-cold wind smacking my face that night. How I strutted with my bags. My heart didn't pound. My legs didn't shake like tambourines. Nothing got me suddenly. I was as calm as that voice on those shipping reports on the radio in England that soft, precise sound, the soothing calm of human vocality, the majesty of believing at last in everything that ever was, the wonder of being completely content with yourself and now, the satisfaction of crossword puzzles, runways, no snack, because 10,000 feet is as high as we shall go, even though I feel as if I am in the clouds, holding hands with some angels, have been waiting to watch over me for all of my natural life. Thank you.
3: Wow, thank you, Brian. Um, I am going to work on my Poetry response whistle because that's all I wanted to do <laughs> as you were reading. That was great. Um, so, as a reminder, there are books available from both of the poets um, in the hallway. So please support their work, their art. Um, they're both on sale for $15 tonight. Uh, so I'm Tracy Diamond from Programs and Publications, and it's my honor now to introduce the poet Joseph Ross. Uh, Joseph Ross is the author of three books of poetry. Ache, which were some of the first people to see at Perfect Bound tonight, so that's really exciting. Um, Gospel of Dust and Meeting Bone Man. He has received multiple Pushcart Prize nominations and won the 2012 Pratt Library Little Patexin Review Poetry Prize. Yeah, um, yeah clap for that. So... Um, He also recently served as the 23rd Poet-in-Residence for the Howard County Poetry and Literature Society in Howard County, Maryland. He teaches English and creative writing at Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C. Ross's brightness of spirit shows through his poems that carefully consider religion, race, and sexuality. He's frank and unflinching in his observations of culture and history from Bible verses to Tupac Shakur, uh, to relationships between mothers and sons. His ability to show a subject, with spare language and without pretense, makes the reader see as he sees, with compassionate intensity. A poet documents, they make sense of the world around them and they make associations that linear thought can't always achieve. There's a ritual in this building of understanding. Perhaps what we can learn from Ross's poetry is that language is the ritual, and Cool Disco Dan is leading the way as his Rainbow Choir remembers and recreates the melody of breaking bones. We're very excited to hear this new work, so please give a warm welcome to Joseph Ross.
0: Thank you very much also for that beautiful introduction, which was sort of a poem. Stephen, maybe she should be published. <laughs> uh, listen, I can't say enough to the folks at the Pratt Library. You, you, are, um, you are the best staff for poets. You are amazing, amazing, amazing. I should have some better words to say than that, but it's sort of all I can think. But, you know, there aren't a lot of buildings on uh, major street boulevards where you're going to see Celeste Dokes. Face next to Brian Gilmore's face next to mine, and several others, Rose Solari and, and others. So, I, I am just so grateful to you for all the work you do. And like it's like anything we ask for, you sort of do. I'm just really grateful. So, thank you. Please, please thank these folks. Let's start with some jazz. The first uh, section of ache is a series of poems. On uh, specific John Coltrane songs, you, you, many of you probably know you know John Coltrane's on "Love, Supre- I Love Supreme," kind of his iconic praise song. Uh, and so this is on John Coltrane's "A Love Supreme," and it's uh, it's dedicated to a little boy. When I was uh, in graduate school a hundred years ago, uh, I spent a summer in Uganda, and uh, Joseph was a little seven or eight year old boy that kind of hung around me all the time. He would be at least a grown man now. I I hope he is. One, acknowledgement. If Emily Dickinson's poems echo the four-line verses of New England hymnals, symmetrical praise of an asymmetrical God, the four notes of this praise live in the symmetry of air. They come from the sanctuary of the lung, a dark, moist mass of human breath, this breath chants out four flames of praise. The bass pulses four exultations. The cymbals wash over it in a baptismal litany, a statement of what is. A man exhales the love from which he is made. That love sang supreme and lived among us. Two, Resolution. A Ugandan boy runs barefoot on a dirt path, brown as his skin, packed hard as the martyr's dried blood. His feet push the earth with questions. He learns that uncertainty always lives in dust. His wet lungs constrict and enlarge. His face bleeds water. His lips stretch, imagining the lush of his destination. The answers only lament can teach. Three, pursuance. The gazelle does not know, the lion watches, exhaling. But the ground beneath the ground does. The unknowing seems natural enough until its symmetries burst in four directions, arcing across the sky, leaving a smoldering burn behind them. We wail. It is the language inside every human tongue. Human wailing sounds like a death, but it's actually a boy looking at himself in the water and seeing no moon, no sun, no self, only a shining. Four, psalm. The shining lives just beneath the other darkness. It waits in its own smiling sky, about to thunder with elation, about to rip open a swollen cloud and wash every wound under every other wound. It can't contain anything It can hold everything, our broken bones, our forgotten names, a boy with arms like a river yearning to praise. On John Coltrane's Lush Life. There are no saxophones in the desert. No saguaro has the natural delicacy. Its needles cannot fold and press like skin. Its cactus flesh too firm and rigid. A saxophone needs supple, lush. When human breath swims through its golden canyons, it sings only if the player bends. Humans, too, require moistness, a waterfall of possible, a baptism in bending. Wanderers survive only when the desert trails are lush enough for one note. Soaring skyward, dressed in glistening restraint. In the last uh, year of his own life and the last year of Dr. King's life, uh, John Coltrane wrote a song called Reverend King. This is on John Coltrane's Reverend King. The tenor sax sings the concrete of Auburn Avenue, grandparents' front porch. It whispers Morehouse and tries to read music it hasn't learned yet. It gathers into a man's voice to chant Boston. Here the sax weaves a love song, falling over itself for a rhythm that could carry it, outlive it. It deepens and moves south to a Montgomery of empty buses. Kitchen prayers, bombs, threatened, real. Then drums rise to an angry Birmingham. The verses hum jailed. Their tones are letters, grace notes. Staccato police batons slice the air like the conductors of an insane choir. Coltrane's breath rushes through the saxophone now. The tune terrors in Vietnam. It prays scared in Selma. Its notes are water hoses dog teeth indifference it sings symphony in washington chaos in chicago 1963 was cruel to this melody this unfinished lunch counter where four little girls sit side by side and eat nothing so finally he puts down the sax as it fills with tears unplayable he takes up the bass clarinet because it sounds more like fury more like staring down a president This song knows harmony. It is a choir called Watts. It sings riot in a new tongue, the language of the unheard. This song swirls now. It fills the world house with a straight-spined melody. This tune sings garbage men who are men. This rhythm has walked to a mountaintop. It tastes like a promise, so it clears its throat and soars, singing Memphis. Thank you. So, series Trayvon Martin Requiem. When words cough in a hot wind, when a fist kisses the concrete over and over until bones break, stones stick to blood where skin was. They do not wash out, and a boy is gone. In the courtroom, the lawyers used a foam dummy, a barely human shape faceless and colorless, just like America is not. They hoped to show the how and where and if of a boy's last moments, to show the how and where and if of a man's worst act. The lawyers wanted us to see questions, but they failed. No one can see questions. Litany. A mother should never have to ask for the body of her son more than once. But in America, this request becomes a pleading, a litany to which believers respond, no. He will not be buried in Mississippi, no. His name is not John Doe, no. He was riding the BART train home, not starting anything, no. A collapsed life should not lie, four hours in a street, bleeding in protest, no. You may not take a photograph of his body, no. His story will not end in Memphis, no. Rain. Rain does not bless this body like holy water might. A boy broken by a man who was afraid, a boy ruined by a country who is always afraid. Rain washes like holy water might. Rain makes holy like holy water might, but not this. Some wounds cannot be washed clean. Some sidewalks will never be holy. Some nights, rain is a liar. Tonight, rain looks the same on living skin as it does on dead. Here are jump shots that will not arc toward anything. Here are free throws that will not silence a gym. Here are steals where the point guard does not see the ball slapped away in a blur of hands and bent knees. Here the guard does not fall back on his heels watching this boy streak toward a ghost basket. My friend uh, Jefferson Pinder who did a, the cover of Ake, for which I'm really grateful, uh, many years ago, sort of jokingly, he had come back from, to D.C. from someplace in Virginia where he talked about driving past all these houses with Confederate flags, and he said, we should you know, put dark on our skin and pull out stocking caps and go out and steal, steal these. So from that came a series, and I just want to read one, uh, Confederate Flag Dream number three. I wake in the night and dress in darkness, black hooded sweatshirt like a monk like a monk rising for night prayers chanting in the language of thieves i drive toward a house where a confederate flag flies and america flies under an american flag from a pole in the front yard i park many yards away so i won't be seen then i walk crouched hidden whispering treason psalms i can tell i'm close to the house because it smells like rope like a birmingham church I creep toward the flagpole and watch the house. There is no light, but it breathes like a sleeping dog, like kerosene. I lower the flags. The pulleys groan like cowards. Distant voices scream. Crowds laugh. Ropes tighten on straining flesh. I reach the flag, unhook it, and fold its terrors into my pack. I raise the American flag back up to half mast. one of the things I hope that poetry can do is um, keep certain stories alive remember uh, people who otherwise are not remembered uh, as many of you know the 16th Street Baptist Church 1963 was bombed four girls were killed the same day two teenage boys were also killed in Birmingham one by police, one by an- another teenage boy and um, and I, almost, I feel like, except for a, a couple of other places where I've read about them, their stories are almost lost to history. Uh, my friend Randall Horton, whom many of you know, introduced me to Virgil Ware, and I wanted to tell his story, so this is Requiem for Virgil Ware. 13-year-old boy, killed September 15, 1963, just hours after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. One. The handlebars of a boy's bicycle can be a crucifixion if the year is America. If it's your brother's bicycle and you are laughing like sunshine on the Docina sandusky Road just outside Birmingham, Alabama, when you're riding on the handlebars and your brother James pedals perfectly, relying on your laughter to tell him when to avoid a pothole, a fallen branch, a red motorcycle he will not see. The pine and mimosa trees smile down at you while you dream about the bike you will make your own from an uncle's scrapyard. You'll try to find it there today, piece it together, paint it right, polish its rims. You'll finally be able to share a paper route with both your older brothers, and the boys will buy a car, take girls on dates, go who knows where. Your eyes are oceans today. You hum as gravel pops under the bike tires. You smile loud as the wind singing past your ears. That wind, the only breath you need on this Sunday afternoon. Two, Larry Joe Sims was a 16-year-old boy you did not know. He had just bought a small Confederate flag at a rally. He knew there had been a bomb at a church that morning. He knew there was a cross atop that church. He heard some Negro boys were throwing rocks. His friend Michael drove a motorcycle red as Alabama air. Larry clung to the back. Michael boasted about a pearl-handled revolver. Larry hadn't believed him. Michael handed it to Larry as they sped along the Docena-Sandusky Road. Larry held the revolver reverently. He'd fired a gun before. His eyes were fine, his vision clear. He could see the road ahead. Three, there is nothing so beautiful as a boy's sweat. When you are 13 years old and you can't control your smile, when you dream of your own bike, when you see it in your mind and imagine it's candy apple red or forest green flame, you're not sure which. That joy paints the world. That joy sweats. Your older brother James pedals fierce. His warm breath brushes your neck. You love your brother's breath. You know its smell, its taste. You hope your brother will breathe forever. 4. You didn't know a brick church shivered this morning. You didn't know the face of Christ shattered out of its famous stained glass window. You didn't know the basement filled with bricks falling from the sanctuary above it. You didn't know that four girls were carried out. You never knew silence so hot. But even if you'd known you might have pushed the thought aside, the rising joy of your own bike would smile everything else away. Its joy is that bright. Its sweat is that perfect. The red paint on Michael's motorcycle is almost as dark as the red on Larry's small Confederate flag snapping in the Sabbath wind. It makes him believe something he cannot name. He leans into his friend's back and holds the revolver in his left hand. He thinks about the new school year at Phillips High School. He is an Eagle Scout. He sometimes prays to the one on a cross. He is an American. He knows his family thinks some civil rights are a good idea, but it will still be funny to scare these two black boys on a bike. He'll laugh when their eyes open with fear seeing the gun. He expects them to throw rocks, but they don't. He plans to fire the gun at the ground and then laugh hard as sunshine. He knows he shouldn't close his eyes when firing a gun, but he does anyway. He does not see the bullets hit Virgil's chest and cheek. He does not hear Virgil's breath pull in fast. He laughs down the road on the back of Michael's motorcycle. He does not see them pull over and fall because he closed his eyes. Six. You are smart and skinny. You had faith that your brother would keep the bike up. You knew you could wrap your arms around the handlebars and not fall. You believed in balance. Your toes toes on the front wheels, bolts, you would not fall. You played tight end in football. You knew how to extend your arms. You knew how to rise. Seven, until this afternoon turned dark, until you heard laughter like mocking soldiers, until you lay on your back beside the road James above you, begging you to stop trembling until air became hard in your throat, until the pines loomed over you, piercing the red Alabama sky like nails, until you never saw your brother James so scared, until you needed your brother's breath for yourself now, until you wanted these crucified seconds, his face, his sweat, his breath, to last forever. St. Toribio Romo Gonzalez is a Catholic saint I never learned about, (laughs) and I thought I learned everything. Uh, Mexican saint, the first quarter of the 20th century, uh, who apparently many immigrants crossing the southern border pray to pin holy cards of him inside their clothes for protection. St. Toribio sweatshirt. Your wrinkled image, secured inside his sweatshirt, safety pinned on four sides, so he feels you press his own sweating skin. You, a serious saint, lips that say prayers, eyes that mean martyrdom. Your stories are legend among the near dead. That they dreamed of you and woke to water. That they prayed to you and found apples in the desert. That they gazed at your image and heard your warning to go back. Later to learn there was more desert than they could breathe. Your hands anointed for wandering souls. Your hands tilting the chalice to the lips of a starving faith. St. Terribio Water Litany. For tongues gone gray as greed, pray for us. For mothers dropping the last wet diamonds on the lips of ash, pray for us. For throats where even the blood has dried, pray for us. For amber eyes that see a shimmering, which is a whole country laughing, pray for us. For the ache that is an underground river, pray for us. For the oasis dream that comes too easily to the scared, pray for us who have no country, no air, only a river, a fence, and you. St. Teribio Chapel. The desert wind whispers through Ocotillo branches, shredded fingers pleading to a silent sky. They say, when we are close to death, we will see you. Hear you. Words of comfort, maybe a jar of water. Maybe your hand will point to the true north. We stopped at your chapel in Jalisco, but felt no comfort there. We had too many miles ahead of us, too many countries. We saw your image in the stained glass window, holding a canteen and a cup. But we need the miracle, not the mirage. Santo Toribio Altar. You too died in the middle of the night. Soldiers woke you with cursing guns. Your sisters saw you shot. The floor became an altar. You lived in a country where saints were illegal, where breaking bread sounded like gunfire. Although you never heard the desert did not leave your country, we carry you, sewn inside our coats, our paper saint, the martyr we hope will save us when we lie torn beneath the cactus on an altar of sand. Thank
3: wow, thank you, Joseph. So we'll have, we have time for a Q&A with both of the poets, so if you both wanna come up to the front table. Um, and so we have this microphone for you both to share, um, and if you have a question, um, you can raise your hand and we'll make sure it's addressed, um, all right. And then after the Q and A, we'll also close with a poem from each of you, a poem or two.
1: Okay, thank you very much, excellent presentation, one of a kind. Let me ask this about the future of poetry, because sometime soon, several months from now, it may be a, uh, a lit- what I call a literary darkness, because there's no money available to have some extra programs for you, young people, you know, to follow these examples that we heard tonight. Courtesy, <coughs> we call it frumdech in Hebrew. But can you tell us uh, what do you see in the future coming up in October? Can we uh, save the uh, literary industry? Can we? What can we do to keep it going? And if for some reason there's not much in the till, what can we do to make sure it stays going in whatever way possible? Uh, you said the future, I'm not top tough but I'm make to attempt at this. And uh, I don't think poetry, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's all, it's never been more healthy, for me at least. I mean, I came up at a time, it wasn't this many small independent presses, Publications, <coughs> things like that. I think the future of poetry is can be spectacular. You know what I mean, it's just a matter of what the poets want to do. I mean, I'm, and I'm speaking of all poets, not necessarily academic poets or industry poets. It depends on the path they want to take. Uh, do they want to continue to to take the position that poetry is vitally important? I remember during the Bush years that. A movement was started by a poet out of Colorado. Can't remember his name, but he was invited to the White House by George Bush. The war was going on. He said, "I'm not coming." As a matter of fact, whoever else is against this, sign this. And like 500,000 poets signed this, and then we know we're not coming. You know what I mean? And uh, it's—I mean—poetry to me still plays that role. It's not what it what it was maybe a hundred. 20 years ago, but I still think the future of it is bright and vibrant, even if the current lunatics in the White House (laughs) (laughs) decide that they don't want to fund the art. I mean, they actually think people are like, this is not going to make art. They're going to make more art. They are. That's what I think. And they're not going to be able to regulate that, because their money won't be, they won't have a federal tag on it to say you can't do that kind of art you can be able to do it in almost any
0: art you want. So I guess that's the uh, position I take. Well, I think that's right. And I would just add maybe two things. One, I think um, if you don't have your member of Congress's and Senator's phone numbers in your phone, uh, you need to, like, I'll stop talking and we can do it right now. <laughs> but we all, we all need to do this. Um, because, you know, sadly, sort of far crazier things are likely to happen than... You know, defunding the NEA or something, but we really need to be active, and we need to be on the phone, and we need to be waiting on hold, and we need to be insisting to talk to somebody in these offices. Um, but I also, on a more personal level, I would say, uh, I teach at a boys' high school in Washington, D.C. That We have, right, we have two sections of high school seniors uh, signing up for creative writing poetry. Uh, they're writing amazing work. It is, it, it's, it's not in danger. It is not in danger. Um, And we have people here, poets, publishers, editors, uh, who are very much part of keeping all of this alive and happening And a place like the Pratt uh, is not going to let this stumble. I mean, it's not going to stumble. I mean, I just don't feel concerned about that, Um, about those numbers (coughs) should be in all of our phones. Um, Since you brought it up, what are are we going
1: to... Start creating our own alternative design, peace, and freedom movement rules that stop being reactionary
0: and, and a system which cannot be reformed? That's harder to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: would just say it's a good question. I think that's the question facing the society right now is, um, in terms of organizing yourself for. Country that you uh, you know, I think a lot of people object to what's going on right now, currently, and have objected to what's going on for a very long time. The current models and values, the Cornell West called it, we're in a spiritual blackout right now. I mean, Joe, when we were eating, we were talking about that. There's no there's no voice of high moral consciousness right now to counteract the voices of you know of hate and division. They're not. Not really. There's no voice like that. There's no Martin Luther King voice right now that you regularly hear or even someone else. We mentioned even Reverend Jesse Jackson was a voice at one point and there are other people voices. But those, that generation born in the tw- late 20s, 30s, 40s, that generation has you know older moved on. And it is time for new voices to emerge and new organizations to emerge. And that is a very Big dilemma for our society right now. Because the path that things are on right now it's not a good path, I mean, at all, not at least to me. I
3: have a poetry related question. Um, who, for both of you, who are your
1: favorite living poets right now and not in this room? I <laughs> <laughs> mean, um, yeah, I guess my favorite living poet right now I mean, my good friend Kenneth Carroll, I would, I would say him but, you know, I don't want to say somebody who's really been instrumental in my career and instrumental in the way I view what poetry can be is Haki Mata Ruby and Chicago and published my first book, started out as Don L. Lee. It's more of a, not an inside poet or anything like that. He just just made the word where he was. And, and that's somebody who I still greatly respect. He just turned uh, 75 mm-hmm. um, last month. Still around, still putting out the word and things like that. He still okay. published a lot of, published a lot of poems. I mean, if you look at the third world catalog, if you want to support poetry, anybody in this room right now, just go to the Third World Foundation site, I think now it's called Third World Press Foundation, and uh, buy some of those books of those great poets that are in there and things like that. But Hakim Adagudi would been very instrumental for me if you're
0: talking about living poetry. Well, a, it is a hard question. I hate to yeah, mention, but I, I think somebody who certainly affects my work a lot is Martina Spada. Uh, poet in uh, Camp, uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, I go back in moments when I'm not sure I'll survive to Jericho Brown's poetry. Uh, Randall Horton's poetry keeps me awake at night. Um, there really are some fine poets in this room whose work I turn too often to often, um, too. But yeah, those are a few I would say,
3: I'm going to close each with a pole or two. Sure.
1: I'll just read two poems really fast. And uh, let me pull these poems out. And thanks, everybody, again, for coming out in the library, who has always upheld the spirit of poetry here. And said, I've been coming here. So uh, in my book here, We Didn't Know Any Gangsters, there's a trilogy, a lot of trilogies in there. One is called the George Holiday Rodney King video. It's a three-part poem, and I'm gonna read the uh, second part, which is the director's cut. And uh, as you all know, George Holiday was the South American plumber who stumbled through the dark, had a new camera he wanted to test out, and his wife called him and says, hey, look, check this out, what's going on outside? And he has a new camera, he's in LA. And he cuts it on, and it's the Rodney King clip, probably the most famous now piece of citizen cinema, maybe in the history of the country now. And if y'all gives you a little bit of pause because you all remember those cops got off, and they had you know a video so clear now. Now the technology has moved on to our phones, as you see, that was almost 30 years ago that that happened. George Holiday, Rodney King video, director's cut. Dred Scott, Martin King, Rodney King, Dred King, Martin Luther Scott, Dred Luther Rodney, Rodney Luther King. The Reverend Dr. Rodney Luther King was pulled over last night by the Los Angeles police in Memphis, Tennessee, and taken to the Lorraine Motel. He escaped, got a few blocks down the street, but he was caught and brought back to the motel. They asked him where he worked, he said I hadn't had a job in quite a while. Now and then he preached sermons. They told him he was lying. Dred Scott, Martin Scott, Martin King, King Martin, King Rodney, King Dred, the King of Dred, the Reverend King Scott Martin. Dred is a liar. He was free. He was on the balcony. He was unarmed. He was a minister. He was probably drunk. He was driving drunk, he was resisting, he was a resistor. He had been to the mountaintop, he was a man of peace. He wanted to march, Los Angeles, Missouri, Memphis. He had seen Wisconsin, the promised land, the court settlement, Rodney Martin, Dredd King, Scott King, a drunken liar, a man with no real job, driving skills, a man who preaches an occasional sermon, almost died a slave, on some balcony in Los Angeles, surrounded by cops with stun guns, batons, explanations, Supreme Court orders, caught on film by Francis Ford, Steven Spielberg, Soderbergh, Coppola, Orson Frank Wells Capra. That is exactly how it happened. I watched it without any buttered popcorn. Some loud, drunken minister resisting arrests in the 20th century, a war will be fought over a movie. Chances are, by Johnny Mathis, is the theme song. And as I, si- I said before about trying to keep manuscripts going, so I had a bunch of points about D.C. and the various things of what the town is, the uptown, the history of it. But it's also the town where the, you know, president, the leader of the world supposedly, comes to live. And this is written during with Obama. And this is called Raising in the Sun. And this is written in Obama's voice, sort of like he's in the White House and he's realizing like how you know where he is. Raising in the Sun. I wasn't born in America. I was born in Hawaii. I am not really black, I didn't grow up around black people. I can't make sweet potato pie, I can't fry chicken. I can play basketball, but I don't have a crossover. I never read Jed or Ebony growing up. I never saw Soul Train or Sanford and Son either. Good Times is a disco song by Sheik, but I never knew who Chic was either. Rumor is I dropped acid, listened to the Eagles, mostly Hotel California, and Kiss painted my face white with stars. I rode a skateboard. I read Stephen King, not James Baldwin or Richard Wright. Martha's Vineyard, is that George Washington's wife? The Underground Railroad was really underground. Dred Scott's a roster, Right. Shut the hell up. My father left me. Went back home like he was Marcus Garvey or Du Bois or Carl Hinesbury going to Mexico. He was from Chicago. He believed in it. Didn't want to eat his pulled pork on the south side only. They hit his daughter with a brick. Broke his heart. Now we got to hear about it a few hundred times a year. Walter Younger. Walter Younger. Walter Younger, God damn. I wasn't born in America, but I live there now. People there hate me because I am black, because I don't have a crossover and can't-fried chicken, but mostly because I never come out anymore. I stay home, read essays by James Baldwin, fiction by Richard Wright, watch Raisin in the Sun until my hair turns black. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm glad Brian uh, finished with a persona poem. Let me finish with a couple of of them and uh, to again say thank you to all of you for coming out tonight. Um, Very grateful to you. Nelson Mandela speaks to Tupac Shakur. Some say we have nothing in common but we were both born into revolution and lived. We sang the same century, though it rarely sang to us. We read the bad news of ghettos and tried to write a gospel they could believe. You loved your mother like a country. I loved my country like the mother she was not. In a city of light, you were killed too soon. In a country at dawn, I keep being born. Nelson Mandela speaks to Trayvon Martin. I walk down Fox Street in Johannesburg at dawn. A light rain darkens my shoes. They scrape against the small stones. I'm standing in the doorway when I see you across the street on the corner looking at me. You wear no hood today. You smile and walk toward me. I smile and wait for you. The day begins here. Coffee and tea stands push back their canvas covers. A whistle sings from the train station. Your arms swing at your sides like only a teenage boy's arms can swing. You look like you might open your mouth to sing. There is no SUV in sight. I am not sure how to greet you. So I stare at your wet grass-stained shoes, then back at your 17-year-old face. I say, come in, get out of the rain. Thank right. you.